Now, some of you are probably thinking, why in the world would you call a sermon series bulletproof, especially about marriage? And that's a valid question that I've got two reasons for. One reason is kind of superficial. I'm going to be totally honest with you. The second reason is, is more profound, but I'm just going to share with you the first reason. As we began preparing and praying for this sermon series a few months ago, I started to realize that the vast majority of stuff, of resources and materials that are available to help with our marriages, at, at first glance, appear to be designed with the express purpose of making sure that no man anywhere, anytime would ever want to participate in making his marriage better. Most of the stuff that is out there for marriage is exclusively marketed and targeted for women. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's just a little trend that I noticed. Let me just show you a few of what I'm talking about. Take a look at this thing right here that's available. One with a heart, a marriage seminar. I don't know a dude in the world who would wake up and go, I want to do that. Here's another one. Check this out. Making marriage relational. I mean, just make me sit through 24 hours of the notebook, would you please? Number three, check this one. A new way to love. I, I'm not going to that. I'm sorry. I'm sure they're great. I mean this sincerely. I'm, I'm not, but, but I don't know a guy anywhere who'd want to be. Now, number four, there's an outside chance a guy might want to come to this one. Check this out. There's a chance. There is a chance that you could get your man to a marriage seminar like that, but it's outside at best. So we felt like bulletproof was something that the guys could could get behind and dive into and, and dig into what God has for us as men because, ladies, we know, we know that you are relationally miles ahead of us. You are more astute. You're more intuitional. You're wiser. You're more savvy than we are relationally. And we need the help, but we don't like to stop for directions to a gas station, much less admit that we need help on a marriage. So bulletproof not only is something that I think men can get behind to join because the wives and the women, they're, they're going to be a part of this. They, they want to make their marriage better, their relationships better. But then I remembered there's actually a passage of Scripture that presents such a powerful, powerful principle that it actually relates to what we're talking about. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, God is describing through the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus what the Christian faith looks like in real life. Not only is it something for, you know, eternity and one day in the sweet by and by when the roll is called up yonder, and it is those things. There is an eternal capacity to faith. But it is also for the here and now. It's also for life as we know it in this world. The Christian faith touches every part. Eternal life is not just about when we die, it's about how we live. And in Ephesians 6, Paul is explaining this, and he says that while we live in this world, those of us who, who follow Christ, those of us who are committed to Jesus, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. There, there's a war going on spiritually 
that we're not always even aware of. And he, and he tells us to put on the full armor of God to protect ourselves for this battle that we're actually in. And the more we're aware of it, the better off we will be. But, but there's one passage in particular that, I, that it really caught my attention. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, the Bible says, in addition to all of these parts of the armor, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. And that's, that's a pretty solid translation from the original Greek that it was written in. But you've got to remember that Paul is writing this book to the Ephesians in about 60 or 62 A.D. He's about to face execution at the hands of the Roman Empire. He's probably in Rome writing this letter from a prison cell. And so Paul is, is well aware and, and quite familiar with Rome's military prowess and, and their power. And at that time, fiery arrows, man, that was the peak of military weapon technology. And so he says, man, hold up that shield of faith, but I think you could not take too many or an inappropriate level of linguistic liberties to say that we could update this for 2016. And rather than take up the shield of faith, Paul might say, hey, put on the bulletproof vest of faith. Put on that Kevlar vest of faith to deflect and to ricochet the bullets of the evil one. I think a, a first century fiery arrow corresponds to a 21st century bullet. And particularly when it relates to marriage, there are a lot of bullets flying in and around our marriages. Now, it's imperative that we understand marriage is something that God designed. God created it. There are a lot of different forms of it. And, and I think it's important, too, as we start this series that we're not talking about marriage at large being under attack. That, that's not what this is about. Mar marriage at large is, is no more under attack than anything else. Marriage individually is under attack. My marriage, your marriage personally, as long as we take care of our marriages individually, the institution of marriage is going to be just fine. So there's no need to freak out and wring our hands. The world doesn't understand. The world's just being the world. Our job is to show them what it looks like to live out this faith in every part of life, but especially when it comes to marriage. Now, some of you right now are not married. Some of you right now are like, man, I can't. Here we go. I don't know where I'm going to church next week. I could have gone to brunch today. <laughs> but let me make sure that you understand. You, actually, if you're not married, if you're a student or a single adult, you are the primary audience for this series. You are the primary audience. The rest of us who are married, we're, we're going to participate and we're going to engage in it. But for you, you get to do preseason work. You get to do advanced study in preparation for establishing a solid foundation. The rest of us who are married, man, a lot of us are doing remedial rehabilitation work. You get to start with a solid, solid foundation. And that's part of why we're doing this. It's imperative if you're not yet married that you understand this is an important thing. You don't have to be married for a full and complete life. Jesus didn't say, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full as long as they get married. 
But a lot of people act like that. A lot of people maybe think like that when nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus has a full life for you regardless of your marital station. But marriage is a big deal. And particularly as it relates to our faith. Particularly as it relates to how we live day in and day out. You know, when you think about what God is up to in marriage, it's important to, to establish the object of the game. Let me ask you a question. I, this is just a curiosity question. How many of you are, are board game people? How many of you like to play games? Games, Monopoly, Parcheesi, Clue, Risk. When, when you, and that's cool, man. We, we played games as family. I, it was awesome what it taught our kids about how to lose and take a whipping from their father in games of chance and skill. But when you open up a game for the first time, you open up the box and you flip the box lid over and there are the rules to the game. The first thing that the game tells you is what? The object of the game. The object of the game. If you're playing Monopoly, the object is to bankrupt your opponent's and, and live to see another day and finish the game before two weeks have passed. <laughs> if, you're playing, if you're playing risk, it's world domination. You know, every game has an object. Where marriage is concerned, I think a lot of times we think the object of marriage is, is companionship and romance. And, and yes, amen, and, and <laughs> loving, crying children. Was that perfectly timed or what? Sir, I promise this is going to get better. <laughs> that husband up there, I mean, he just, this is hurting him. But the object of marriage matters. Now, there's nothing wrong. And as a matter of fact, romance and love and, and excitement and all of those things are, are a part of God's plan and design and desire for marriage. But they're not the object of marriage. The object of marriage, among other places, is clearly stated for us in Ephesians chapter number 5. It's funny to me, I think, that, that Paul is in Ephesians 5 describing a godly, gospel, covenant marriage, and then immediately starts talking about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. But, but that's what he does. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, as the scriptures say, this is verse 31, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. The object of Christian marriage is oneness. Oneness. You can call it unity, and that's a good word, but I like the word oneness. That's what we're shooting for as husband and wife in covenant marriage. Covenant marriage is a three-party agreement. Covenant marriage is one God, one man, one woman, one life. That, that oneness. And God created it at the very beginning, Paul's just echoing in Ephesians 5, Genesis chapter 2. At the very beginning, God said the exact same thing. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife. And, and the, the old terminology is a great term. It says the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Now, that's not exclusively about the, the physical and, and sexual part of marriage, although that's a part of it. But it is an expression that is all-encompassing. It is all-consuming. That's why it is said that a husband and wife on their wedding night consummate the marriage because when they consummate the marriage, it is all-consuming. It is, of course, physical. It is emotional. It is relational. It is spiritual. It's intellectual. Every part of who you are is engaged in consummating the marriage. So, this is our foundation. This is the object of marriage is oneness. So a husband and a wife come together. Now, as we said at the very beginning, this is, a this is the adventure of a lifetime. A man and a woman who are very, very different, who come from different backgrounds, different families of origin, different personality types, different temperaments, different attitudes toward money. It's been really funny. I first noticed this in my own marriage. Julie and I discovered very, very early on that there are money personalities. People think about and handle and treat money differently. And it just so happens in our household that Julie is a saver. She will save money. I mean, like I can't even tell you, it's awesome. It's great. <clears throat> I'm not. I'm, I'm my personality, uncontrolled by the Holy Spirit of God, my personality is, man, pull the trigger and let it ride. We'll figure something out later. Now, what I've noticed is, our household isn't the only one like that. It's funny to me. I think it's God's sense of humor that I have seen more often than not, God brings together financial opposites to be one, to be one flesh, that either the husband or the wife is the saver and their counterpart is the spender. It's interesting, too. I think as a general rule, if a woman is the spender, that spending is typically much more consistent and broad over time. That women, women will nickel and dime you to death if they're the spender. Men, on the other hand, man, we are the big ticket purchasers. We, we don't, we don't you know, go to Target a whole lot, but we could show up at home with a boat. <laughs> That's just a little observation I've made. But, but the goal is oneness. Julie and I, financially, and in every other part of our lives, we've had to figure out we are working it out to, to figure out what, what does it look like to be one together. I want you to take out your program that you got when you came in. I want you to write down something that is so important. It, it is so, so important for this conversation, not only today, but over the next few weeks. And, and the statement is this. Men and women are different. Don't laugh. I, this, I'm serious. Write that stuff down. Men and women are different. God, in his creative genius, created humanity in his image. No other part of creation gets that. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Male and female, he created them in his image. And so we're different. The fact that we ever talk to each other is nothing short of a miracle of heaven. But the fact that we could become one and united is a miracle 
of heaven. Because the, the bullets that come at us maritally are limitless. The, the bullets include pride, selfishness, sometimes anger or rage, sometimes abuse, sometimes baggage from our past or our families of origin. The list is almost limitless, but the Kevlar vest, the bulletproof vest of faith is limitless to deflect, to ricochet those bullets. But we've got to understand how that happens. You see, husbands and wives are called to equally important but different roles. Wives have a different job and a different role to play than husbands. Husbands have a different role to play. But Paul kind of helps us get on the same page when he says this in Ephesians 5.21. Right before he begins talking about these roles that husbands and wives play, look at what he says in Ephesians 5.21. He says, further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm going to, I want to share something with you that I hope doesn't disappoint you or, or cause you any spiritual hurdles. I don't like to submit. I don't. I, I'm just going to tell you, I like my way. Anybody else? Who else likes your way? Can I just see a show of hands of the people who are honest in the room? Thank you so much. We like our way. From the youngest, we're born with a predisposition to self-preservation and self-protection. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, that's just part of our heritage. That's part of what we inherit spiritually. But Paul says, in a relationship with Christ, because of Jesus, it is possible for us who follow Christ, and particularly in marriage for husbands and wives, to submit to one another. And then he goes on to say, this is how it happens. This is what it looks like. I'm going to start with the men in the house. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let, me just, let me just share with you what he says about husbands. A husband gives, number one, sacrifice. Sacrifice. He says, for husbands, submitting to your wife means that you love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Man. Sacrifice. If there were ever anything that ran completely counter to the male character and temperament, it is sacrifice. That does not come naturally to men. You might want to write that down. That's a profound statement. We don't sacrifice naturally. It is only under the leadership and the guidance and the conviction of God's Holy Spirit that men choose to willingly sacrifice for their wives the way Christ sacrificed for the church. That's where it starts, men. You, you want to be a real man? Sacrifice. That's what it looks like. So, so this marriage thing isn't just about having some arm candy 
although you do. This marriage thing isn't about having your needs met. This marriage thing is about sacrifice for your wife. Paul goes on. He says that a husband also gives safety to his wife. Safety. Julie and I have asked this question hundreds and hundreds of times of women all over the country. What's the number one thing you want in your marriage? What's the number one thing you look for in your relationship? And it's safety. It's safety. To know that she's safe emotionally and relationally, certainly physically, but to know that she's safe. Paul says, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He gave himself up for her. Look at this, verse 26. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Ladies, you will never be safer than in the arms of God. You will never find any more safety than in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And any man who doesn't seek to emulate that and provide that for you, if you aren't married to him, ain't worth your time. If a guy won't sacrifice for you when you're dating, please, please understand, I've never lied to you. I'm telling you, if he won't sacrifice and provide safety relationally for you when you're dating, nothing will happen on the other side of the altar to make him all of a sudden go, all right, where do I sign up to sacrifice? It doesn't happen. So the answer is, if you're dating somebody who won't sacrifice, theologically, biblically, run for the nearest exit like your hair is on fire. You can't do that. I did not hear one masculine clap in that entire round. But that's the bottom line. That you provide sacrifice, that you provide safety, and that you provide satisfaction. And some of you men are thinking, all right, here we go. No, just calm down. We're getting there, I promise, but this ain't it. Check this out. Paul goes on to describe what Jesus did and how it relates to marriage. He said he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So Jesus' whole purpose in that sacrifice thing was to help the church be everything the church is supposed to be, to satisfy its reason for existence. So as a husband, my job is to make sure that I'm creating an environment, that I'm providing, that I'm sacrificing so that Julie can fulfill the purposes for which God created her. And I'll just tell you as an aside, I've noticed over the last 24 years, whenever I choose to do that, everything works better. It all works better. Now, some of you ladies, some of you who are married right now, you are trying not to jump out of your seat and become Pentecostal and start shouting in tongues, and that's okay. But you need to make sure that you remember Paul didn't leave you out of this equation either. You've got a role to play. You've got an opportunity and a calling to fulfill as a wife. Because just as a husband gives those things, a wife 
has something to give and to offer to her husband as well. Number one, a wife gives respect. Respect. Now, some of you are thinking, "Mm mm-hmm. What if he's not respectable? That is a valid question. For the moment, let's just file that under the heading of interesting and irrelevant. Because he's called to love you, period, regardless of whether or not you're lovely or lovable. But you, as a wife, just as a wife needs safety, a man needs, a man feeds on respect. He does. We do. I've asked, I've asked a lot of people, I go, what do you think is the number one need of a man? And I, well, I know what that is. No, that's part of it. But the primary need of every healthy, God-honoring man in the world is respect for his wife, especially, above all, to respect him. This is what Paul says. For wives, this means that you submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, a lot of people get hung up on that. I understand that. I get it. But it's only because they've misunderstood what precedes that submission. First of all, we submit to one another. We've already established that. Second of all, if a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, he's taken the initiative in displaying and demonstrating sacrifice. So by the time it comes time for her to submit to him, she's looking at him going, dude, he's given up everything for me. My needs are greater and more important than his needs to him. So I'm only submitting to my own best interest. And so I will respect him. Now, if he's not respectable, something in that guy, something in him is worthy of respect. You, you married him. So, so, so find that little ember, that, that little barely glowing ember down in the ashes and, and, and feed that fire. <laughs> Just, I mean, just, just get that thing, just, but watch what happens when a woman gives respect to her husband, the fire spreads. I'm just telling you, it works. She gives respect. She also gives refuge. A wife gives refuge. Besides Jesus, the greatest haven of my life is my wife, Julie. When I get home in the evening... It doesn't matter what else has happened during the day. What anonymous email or letter or whatever, none of that matters. She's my haven. She's my refuge. Check this out in Proverbs chapter 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? Mac. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She's a refuge. She's a haven. I'm just telling you, ladies, you provide respect and refuge for your man. Watch out. I mean, he would, I'll just take on the world. It happens. I promise you. Number three, a wife gives trust. A wife gives trust. You have to choose to trust your husband. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. 
Submission is just another word for trust. Well, but Mac, you don't. I understand. We've already established the fact he's not perfect. None of us is. Well, but I just choose to trust him. Communicate that. Tell him. We need things explicitly stated. I trust you. Also, I mean, we, we need that. I remember when Julie and I first got married, one of our first disagreements, I genuinely don't remember what it was about. But, but you ever have those times in marriage where you know you're on different pages and something's wrong, but it hasn't been stated overtly or, or explicitly? And I was, you know, dumb me. I was like, honey, something wrong? And I'll never forget, she said, she said, if I have to tell you what's wrong, that's a bigger problem than what's wrong. <laughs> now, I knew. I, I said, honey, I did. I, I didn't get mad. I was like, I said, I'm going to need a lot more help than that. <laughs> you're you're going to have to tell me when something's wrong. I can't just be left to guess. We need explicit Good, bad, and ugly. We, we need it communicated in love and explicitly. But when you show and demonstrate that you trust us, we become more trustworthy. We do. Now, every person in this room has violated trust at some level at some point. We've all done it. But you've got to choose to forgive. That's, that's a you issue. The breaking of the trust, that's another person issue. But choosing to forgive and choosing to trust, particularly in the context of marriage, you can't stay married without forgiveness. I know Julie's tried. But she's chosen to forgive me. She's chosen to say, I'm not going anywhere. Put on the Kevlar bulletproof vest of faith to deflect and ricochet the bullets of our enemy. This marriage thing is a big deal. How you date, who you date. When you raise the bar, you will shrink the pool. Just, just know that that's going to happen. But you really don't want to marry somebody just because they have a pulse and they're available. You want to marry somebody who's going to love you and respect you like God talks about. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Because in this moment, I want to, I want to make the leap that God makes. Because marriage, ultimately, this this oneness that God calls us to aim for and work toward ultimately isn't about us. It's ultimately about him. It's ultimately about his character, his love for his people. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship with God, you've never chosen to trust the only one who can't take advantage of your submission. The only one who can fulfill every promise he's ever made to you. 
we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of trust, a prayer of beginning. Just to step into that relationship, just silently pray right where you're sitting. Just say, Jesus, just talk to him silently. He's listening. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I received the sacrifice you made for me on the cross. And I claim the new life that's available in your resurrection. I confess my sin, all of them, to claim your forgiveness, God, all of it, and to follow you with everything I've got from this moment forward forever. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for another moment. But if you just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you quietly but unmistakably just to raise your hand as our heads are bowed. Just, just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head as you confirm this moment, you stamp it to know that it's real and that God did that. Because this is the greatest and most significant moment of your life. And as a church, we honor that and we celebrate it. And so we would ask if you would, before you leave today, just take that program that you got when you came in and fill out the connect card inside it because we want to be a family of faith for you, with you. We want to help. And if you'll just fill that card out and tear it off at the perforation and hand it to an usher or maybe somebody under the blue awning on your way out, just to make a brief personal connection. Just say, today was my day and that's how we start the ball rolling. And just know that as a church, we, we honor that and we celebrate it, as a matter of fact. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.